Chapter Nine of the Alaskan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. The Alaskan by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Nine. The reversing of the engines had not stopped the momentum of the ship when Alan reached the open deck. She was fighting, but still swept slowly ahead against the force, struggling to hold her back. He heard running feet, voices, and the rattle of davit blocks, and came up as the starboard boat aft began swinging over the smooth sea. Captain Rifle was ahead of him, half-dressed, and the second officer was giving swift commands. A dozen passengers had come from the smoking-room. There was only one woman. She stood a little back, partly supported in a man's arms, her face buried in her hands. Alan looked at the man, and he knew from his appearance that she was the woman who had screamed. He heard the splash of the boat as it struck water, and the rattle of oars, but the sound seemed a long distance away. Only one thing came to him distinctly in the sudden sickness that gripped him, and that was the terrible sobbing of the woman. He went to them, and the deck seemed to sway under his feet. He was conscious of a crowd gathering about the empty davits, but he had eyes only for these two. "'Was it a man or a woman?' he asked. It did not seem to him it was his voice speaking. The words were forced from his lips. And the other man, with the woman's head crumpled against his shoulder, looked into a face as emotionless as stone. "'A woman,' he replied. "'This is my wife. We were sitting here when she climbed upon the rail and leaped in. My wife screamed when she saw her going.' The woman raised her head. She was still sobbing, with no tears in her eyes, but only horror. Her hands were clenched about her husband's arm. She struggled to speak and failed, and the man bowed his head to comfort her. And then Captain Rifle stood at their side. His face was haggard, and a glance told Alan that he knew. "'Who was it?' he demanded. This lady thinks it was Miss Standish. Alan did not move or speak. Something seemed to have gone wrong for a moment in his head. He could not hear distinctly the excitement behind him, and before him things were a blur. The sensation came and passed swiftly, with no sign of it in the immobility of his pale face. Yes, the girl at your table, the pretty girl. I saw her clearly, and then, then— It was the woman. The captain broke in as she caught herself with a choking breath. It is possible you are mistaken. I cannot believe Miss Standish would do that. We shall soon know. Two boats are gone and a third lowering. He was hurrying away, throwing the last words over his shoulder. Alan made no movement to follow. His brain cleared itself of shock, and a strange calmness began to possess him. 
"'You are quite sure it was the girl at my table?' he found himself saying. "'Is it possible you might be mistaken?' "'No,' said the woman. "'She was so quiet and pretty that I have noticed her often. "'I saw her clearly in the starlight, "'and she saw me just before she climbed to the rail and jumped. "'I am almost sure she smiled at me and was going to speak, "'and then, then she was gone.' "'I didn't know until my wife screamed,' added the man. I was seated facing her at the time. I ran to the rail and could see nothing behind but the wash of the ship. I think she went down instantly. Alan turned. He thrust himself silently through a crowd of excited and questioning people, but he did not hear their questions and scarcely sensed the presence of their voices. His desire to make raised haste had left him, and he walked calmly and deliberately to the cabin where Mary Standish would be if the woman was mistaken, and it was not she who had leaped into the sea. He knocked at the door only once. Then he opened it. There was no cry of fear or protest from within, and he knew the room was empty before he turned on the electric light. He had known it from the beginning. From the moment he heard the woman scream, Mary Standish was gone. He looked at her bed. There was the depression made by her head in the pillow. A little handkerchief lay on the coverlet, crumpled and twisted. Her few possessions were arranged neatly on the reading table. Then he saw her shoes and her stockings and a dress on the bed and he picked up one of the shoes and held it in a cold, steady hand. It was a little shoe. His fingers closed about it until it crushed like paper. He was holding it when he heard someone behind him, and he turned slowly to confront Captain Rifle. The little man's face was like grey wax. For a moment neither of them spoke. Captain Rifle looked at the show crumpled in Alan's hand. "'The boats got away quickly,' he said in a husky voice. "'We stopped inside the third mile. If she can swim, there is a chance.' "'She won't swim,' replied Alan. "'She didn't jump in for that. She is gone.' In a vague and detached sort of way he was surprised at the calmness of his own voice. Captain Rifle saw the veins standing out on his clenched hands and in his forehead. Through many years he had witnessed tragedy of one kind and another. It was not strange to him, but a look of wonderment shot into his eyes at Alan's words. It took only a few seconds to tell what had happened the preceding night without going into details. The captain's hand was on Alan's arm when he finished, and the flesh under his fingers was rigid and hard as steel. "'We'll talk with Rosalind after the boat's return,' he said. He drew Alan from the room and closed the door. Not until he had re-entered his own cabin did Alan realize he still held the crushed shoe in his hand. He placed it on his bed and dressed. It took him only a few minutes. Then he went and found the captain, 
Half an hour later the first boat returned. Five minutes after that a second came in, and then a third. Alan stood back, alone, while the passengers crowded the rail. He knew what to expect, and the murmur of it came to him. Failure! It was like a sob rising softly out of the throats of many people. He drew away. He did not want to meet their eyes or talk with them, or hear the things they would be saying. And as he went, a moan came to his lips, a strangled cry filled with an agony which told him he was breaking down. He dreaded that. It was the first law of his kind to stand up under blows and he fought against the desire to reach out his arms to the sea and entreat Mary Standish to rise up out of it and forgive him. He drew himself on like a mechanical thing. His white face was a mask through which burned no sign of his grief, and in his eyes was a deadly coldness. Heartless, the woman who had screamed might have said, and she would have been right. His heart was gone. Two people were at Rosland's door when he came up. One was Captain Rifle, the other Marston, the ship's doctor. The captain was knocking when Alan joined them. He tried the door. It was locked. I can't rouse him, he said, and I did not see him amongst the passengers. Nor did I, said Alan. Captain Rifle fumbled with his master key. I think the circumstances permit, he explained. In a moment he looked up, puzzled. The door is locked on the inside, and the key is in the lock. He pounded with his fist on the panel. He continued to pound until his knuckles were red. There was still no response. Odd, he muttered. Very odd, agreed Alan. His shoulder was against the door. He drew back, and with a single crash sent it in. A pale light filtered into the room from a corridor lamp, and the men stared. Rosland was in bed. They could see his face dimly upturned as if staring at the ceiling, but even now he made no movement and spoke no word. Marston entered and turned on the light. After that, for ten seconds, no man moved. Then Alan heard Captain Rifle close the door behind them, and from Marston's lips came a startled whisper. Good God! Rosland was not covered. He was undressed and flat on his back. His arms were stretched out, his head thrown back, his mouth agape, and the white sheet under him was red with blood. It had trickled over the edges and to the floor. His eyes were loosely closed. After the first shock, Dr. Marston reacted swiftly. He bent over Rosland, and in that moment, when his back was toward them, Captain Rifle's eyes met Alan's. The same thought, and in another instant disbelief, flashed from one to the other. Marston was speaking, professionally cool now. A knife stab close to the right lung, if not in it and an ugly bruise over his eye. He is not dead. Let him lie as he is until I return with instruments and dressing. 
the door was locked on the inside said alan as soon as the doctor was gone and the window is closed it looks like suicide it is possible there was an understanding between them and rosland chose this way instead of the sea captain rifle was on his knees he looked under the berth peered into the corners and pulled back the blanket and sheet there is no knife he said stonily and in the moment he added there are red stains on the window it was not attempted suicide it was murder yes if rosland dies it was done through the open window someone called rosland to the window struck him and then closed the window or it is possible if he were sitting or standing here that a long-armed man might have reached him it was a man alan we've got to believe that it was a man of course a man alan nodded they could hear marston returning and he was not alone captain rifle made a gesture toward the door better go he advised this is a ship's matter and you won't want to be unnecessarily mixed up in it come to my cabin in half an hour i shall want to see you the second officer and the purser were with dr marston when alan passed them and he heard the door of rosland's room close behind him the ship was trembling under his feet again they were moving away he went to Mary Standish's cabin and deliberately gathered her belongings and put them in the small handbag with which she had come aboard. Without any effort at concealment, he carried the bag to his room and packed his own dunnage. After that, he hunted up Stampede Smith and explained to him that an unexpected change in his plans compelled them to stop at Cordova. He was five minutes late in his appointment with the captain. Captain Rifle was seated at his desk when Alan entered his cabin. He nodded toward a chair. Uh, we'll reach Cordova inside an hour, he said. Dr. Marston says Rosland will live, but of course we cannot hold the gnome in port until he is able to talk. He was struck through the window. I will make oath to that. Have you anything in mind? Only one thing, replied Alan. A determination to go ashore as soon as I can, if it is possible I shall recover her body and care for it. As for Rosland, it is not a matter of importance to me whether he lives or dies. Mary Standish had nothing to do with the assault upon him. It was merely coincident with her own act and nothing more. Will you tell me our location when she leaped into the sea? He was fighting to retain his calmness, his resolution not to let Captain Rifle see clearly what the tragedy of her death had meant to him. We were seven miles off the Eyak River coast, a little south and west. If her body goes ashore, it will be on the island or the mainland east of Eyak River. I am glad you are going to make an effort. There is a chance, and I hope you will find her. Captain Rifle rose from his chair and walked nervously back and forth. "'It's a bad blow for the ship, her first trip,' he said. "'But I'm not thinking of the gnome. I'm thinking of Mary Standish. My God, it is terrible. If it had been anyone else, anyone!' His words seemed to choke him, 
and he made a despairing gesture with his hands. It is hard to believe, almost impossible to believe she would deliberately kill herself. Tell me again what happened in your cabin. Crushing all emotion out of his voice, Alan repeated briefly certain details of the girl's visit, but a number of things which he had trusted to his confidence he did not betray. He did not dwell upon Rosalind's influence or her fear of him. Captain Rifle saw his effort, and when he had finished, he gripped his hand, understanding in his eyes. "'You're not responsible, not so much as you believe,' he said. "'Don't take it too much to heart, Alan. "'But find her. "'Find her if you can, and let me know. "'You will do that. "'You will let me know?' "'Yes, I shall let you know. "'And Rosland? "'He is a man with many enemies. "'I am positive his assailant is still on board.' Undoubtedly. The captain hesitated. He did not look at Alan as he said. There is nothing in Miss Standish's room. Even her bag is gone. I thought I saw things in there when I was with you. I thought I saw something in your hand. But I must have been mistaken. She probably flung everything into the sea before she went. Such a thought is possible, agreed Alan evasively. Captain Rifle drummed the top of his desk with his fingertips. His face looked haggard and old in the shaded light of the cabin. That's all, Alan. God knows I'd give this old life of mine to bring her back if I could. To me she was much like someone a long time dead. That's why I broke ship's regulations when she came aboard so strangely at Seattle, without reservation. I'm sorry now. I should have sent her ashore. But she's gone, and it's best that you and I keep to ourselves a little of what we guess. I hope you will find her. And if you do, I shall send you word. They shook hands, and Captain Rifle's fingers still held to Alan's as they went to the door and opened it. A swift change had come in the sky. The stars were gone, and a moaning whisper hovered over the darkened sea. A thunderstorm, said the captain. His mastery was gone, his shoulders bent, and there was a tremulous note in his voice that compelled Alan to look straight out into darkness. And then he said, Rosland will be sent to the hospital in Cordova if he lives. Alan made no answer. The door closed softly behind him, and slowly he went through gloom to the rail of the ship and stood there, with a whispered moaning of the sea coming to him out of a pit of darkness. A vast distance away he heard a low intonation of thunder. He struggled to keep hold of himself as he returned to his cabin. Stampede Smith was waiting for him, his dunnage packed in an oilskin bag. Alan explained the unexpected change in his plans. Business in Cordova would make him miss a boat and would delay him at least a month in reaching the tundras. 
It was necessary for Stampede to go on to the range alone. He could make a quick trip by way of the government railroad of Tanana. After that he would go to Alakakat, and then still farther north into the Endicott country. It would be easy for a man like Stampede to find the range. He drew a map, gave him certain written instructions, money, and a final warning not to lose his head and take up gold hunting on the way. While it was necessary for him to go ashore at once, he advised Stampede not to leave the ship until morning, and Stampede was swore an oath he would not fail him. Alan did not explain his own haste, and was glad Captain Rifle had not questioned him too closely. He was not analyzing the reasonableness of his action. He only knew that every muscle in his body was aching for physical action, and that he must have it immediately or break. The desire was a touch of madness in his blood, a thing which he was holding back by sheer force of will. He tried to shut out the vision of a pale face floating in the sea. He fought to keep a grip on the dispassionate calmness which was a part of him. But the ship itself was battering down his stoic resistance. In an hour, since he had heard the scream of the woman, he had come to hate it. He wanted the feel of solid earth under his feet. He wanted with all his soul to reach that narrow strip of coast where Mary Standish was drifting in. But even Stampede saw no sign of the fire that was consuming him, and not until Alan's feet touched land and Cordova lay before him like a great hole in the mountains did the strain give way within him. After he had left the wharf, he stood alone in the darkness, breathing deeply of the mountain smell and getting his bearings. It was more than darkness about him. An occasional light burning dimly here and there gave to it the appearance of a sea of ink threatening to inundate him. The storm had not broken, but it was close, and the air was filled with a creeping warning. The moaning of thunder was low, and yet very near, as if smothered by the hand of a mighty force preparing to take the earth unaware. Through the pit of gloom Alan made his way. He was not lost. Three years ago he had walked a score of times to the cabin of old Olaf Eriksson, half a mile up the shore, and he knew Eriksson would still be there, where he had squatted for twenty years, and where he had sworn to stay until the sea itself was ready to claim him. So he felt his way instinctively, while a crash of thunder broke over his head. The forces of the night were unleashing. He could hear a gathering tumult in the mountains hidden beyond the wall of blackness, and there came a sudden glare of lightning that illumined his way. It helped him. He saw a white reach of sand ahead and quickened his steps. And out of the sea he heard more distinctly an increasing sound. It was as if he walked between two great armies that were setting earth and sea a-tremble as they advanced to deadly combat. The lightning came again, and after it followed a discharge of thunder that gave to the ground under his feet a shuddering tremor. It rolled away, echo upon echo, through the mountains, like the booming of signal-guns, each more distant than the other. 
A cold breath of air struck Alan in the face, and something inside him rose up to meet the thrill of storm. He had always loved the rolling echoes of thunder in the mountains and the fire of lightning among their peaks. On such a night, with the crash of the elements about his father's cabin and the roaring voices of the ranges filling the darkness with tumult, his mother had brought him into the world. Love of it was in his blood, a part of his soul, and there were times when he yearned for this talk of the mountains as others yearned for the coming of spring. He welcomed it now as his eyes sought through the darkness for a glimmer of the light that always burned from dusk until dawn in Olaf Eriksson's cabin. He saw it at last, a yellow eye peering at him through a slit in an inky wall. A moment later the darker shadow of the cabin rose up in his face, and a flash of lightning showed him the door. In a moment of silence he could hear the patter of huge raindrops on the roof, as he dropped his bags and began hammering with his fist to arouse the Swede. Then he flung open the unlocked door and entered, tossing his dunnage to the floor, and shouted the old greeting that Ericsson would not have forgotten, though nearly a quarter of a century had passed since he and Alan's father had tramped the mountains together. He had turned up the wick of the oil lamp on the table, when into the frame of an inner door came Ericsson himself with his huge bent shoulders, his massive head, his fierce eyes, and a great grey beard streaming over his naked chest. He stared for a moment, and Alan flung off his hat, and as the storm broke, beating upon the cabin in a mighty shock of thunder and wind and rain, a bellow of recognition came from Ericsson. They gripped hands. The Swede's voice rose above wind and rain and the rattle of loose windows, and he was saying something about three years ago and rubbing the sleep from his eyes when the strange look in Alan's face made him pause to hear other words than his own. Five minutes later he opened a door, looking out over the black sea, bracing his arms against it. The wind tore in beating his whitening beard over his shoulders, and with it came a deluge of rain that drenched him as he stood there. He forced the door shut and faced Alan, a grey, grey ghost of man in the yellow glow of the oil lamp. From then until dawn they waited, and in the first break of that dawn the long black launch of Olaf the Swede nosed its way steadily out to sea. End of chapter 9 of The Alaskan by James Oliver Curwood Read by Lars Rolander